0: Thank you, team. Thank you, Anna. And good morning, church. It's great to be here with you this morning. Welcome to those of you who are in the building and those of you who are with us online. It's always good to worship the Lord together. We begin a series in Philippians today we're looking forward to. Our memory verse for the month of September is from the book of Philippians. Let's say together, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. Jesus is alive and Jesus reigns. Amen? Amen? Amen. Absolutely. And you know, that very statement, that very message was a statement and a message that was so subversive to the Roman government and the Roman Empire when Paul was alive. It was a message that really stood against much of what Rome had tried to build and it was a message that ultimately would find Paul behind bars and in prison. We're talking about the gratitude that we should have in partnerships today and it was fitting to have Anna here and to be reminded of how grateful we are for having partners serving the Lord all over the world. And isn't it incredible in the testimony and example of the Apostle Paul that we see over and over again that proximity is no obstacle to God in the advancement of the gospel. If it were so, when Paul was behind bars, when he was in prison, the gospel would have been chained. His effectiveness and his ministry would have been hindered. Yet what we see time and time and again as we get into the New Testament and read through Paul's letters is that the opposite was true. Behind bars, Paul sat and he wrote. And the Holy Spirit worked and the gospel went forth because there is nothing that can hold the gospel in chains. Amen? Amen. Philippi, as you see some images on the screen before you, it was a city that was colonized by veteran Roman soldiers. They were the veteran Roman soldiers of Octavian and Antony. You might remember those names. Later, when Octavian officially became Emperor Augustus, he divided the city of Philippi into square tracts of land, and he distributed those tracts to the soldiers who were retiring ...and being sent to live in this Macedonian city. These new inhabitants, as you might expect, they were dogmatically loyal to Rome. And they turned the Macedonian city into what was described by many as Little Rome. Philippi was a city with a proud identity and heritage. The citizens of Philippi, they did not have to pay Roman taxes which was, of course, as you might imagine, a huge benefit to them. And as an official Roman colony, Christians and Jews, they would not have been allowed to openly worship within the city limits. Those places were reserved for the temples of the Roman gods, institutions which brought significant commerce and industry to various regions throughout the empire. Instead, Christians and Jews were relegated to worship on the outskirts of the city limits, sometimes even outside the walls of the city. The influence of the pagan temple gods and goddesses had a firm grip on the general population of those who lived within the city. It was as a part of Paul's second missionary journey when he traveled To leave Asia Minor and go to Macedonia, where he would preach the gospel in this town of Philippi. And through his experience, he would become ingratiated with the small population of Philippian Christians. We find an account of Paul's journey to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. It's only about 20 or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Paul arrives in Philippi. Sometime between or around 50 AD when he gets there. And he finds himself when he arrives in the presence of praying women. The account is recorded in Acts chapter 16 verse 13. On the Sabbath day we went outside the city gates to the side of the river. Where we thought there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak with the women who had assembled there. In the midst of the assembly, there just so happens to be a wealthy businesswoman whose name was Lydia. She's a dealer of purple cloths. She's from the Asian city of Thyatira. Luke, the author of Acts, describes Lydia as a God-fearing woman. One who the Lord had opened her heart to respond to the gospel. She is actually the first officially recorded convert to Christianity on European soil. After the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel, she would open her home to host and receive the Lord's workers. Eventually, Paul needed to move on from Philippi to continue his ministry, but he never fully lost contact or influence with the people who were there. It was around 10 years after Paul's initial visit that he would find himself in hot water with Roman authorities, ultimately leading to his imprisonment in Rome sometime between 60 and 62 AD. And it would be from a Roman prison cell where Paul would pen the following words that we will study over the course of our next 10 to 12 weeks together taking us all the way up to our Advent series. Paul's gospel ministry, it had taken root within the city of Philippi, and fruit was being produced. The early house churches were now blossoming blossoming to what may very well have been a single congregation existing in a building on the outskirts of town. And though time and difficult circumstances had now distanced Paul from the Philippians. He had not abandoned them. In his thoughts. Or his prayers. And they had not abandoned him. In their support. Encouragement. And prayers. There was a faithful partnership. Between Paul. And the people of Philippi. And through his practice of letter writing. Paul was able. To remember the person and work. Of Jesus. And share the majesty. And wonder of Christ with the churches he had planted and established throughout the Roman world and beyond. Practically speaking, as we enter the letter of Philippi, Paul is writing to thank the Philippian people for their support. This while also letting them know that their friend and emissary, Epaphroditus, was okay. Epaphroditus, as we'll come to find as we study the letter, was a Philippian congregant who had fallen ill while traveling to deliver a financial gift from the Philippian church to Paul. Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi reminds us that maintaining partnerships and relationships in ministry takes effort. But it is important and significant work. Work that we remember in very practical and literal ways on the fourth Sunday of every month here ...at CNBC when we celebrate and share in the work of our global partners. Global partners like Anna, who's here today. Paul's letters demonstrate a pattern and an effort for the church to follow. Spiritually speaking, Paul is writing to further unveil the beauty and the power... ...and the wonder of a life submitted to Christ. He wants the Philippian people to continue to shine in the community... That God has planted them in. He is concerned. That as a church. They would be effective sources of salt and light. Within their community. And he knows the greatest way for them to do it. Would be to emulate the attitudes. And the behaviors of their savior. Jesus. It's very interesting. And we're going to see this as we study this letter together. Nearly half of the verses. In Paul's letter. To the Philippian church. Contain a direct reference to Jesus. Paul desires for the church to know the supreme worth of Jesus and to understand that living and dying according to the ways of Jesus is the greatest treasure that the church can find here on earth. Our memory verse says it very well for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And so with this in view, we wade into the shallows of Paul's opening thoughts today. We're going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as we reflect on this portion of Paul's letter, we want to huddle around three guiding questions. The first, why should we be thankful and joyful in our remembrances and prayers for one another? The second, how should we regard one another in the fellowship of our lives and ministries And then finally, what does God cultivate within a Christian community when love abounds? Before we read from the scriptures, let's ask the Lord to guide our time. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Paul's example to us. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit who works through the reading and the teaching of your word. And we know that Your word is living and active just as the spirit is living and active within us even now. And so our prayer this morning is as we enter your word that you will apply to each one of us exactly what we need for this week and the coming weeks ahead. Father, you have a miraculous, even supernatural way of transforming us through the power and the ministry of your word. And so we sit to learn and to listen and to hear with anticipation today, knowing that you are at work moving even now and we thank you for that we give you the glory in jesus name we pray amen philippians chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ and praise of God. When Paul begins uh, his letter. Uh, the contents that we're studying today in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in every prayer for all of you. And it's hard for us in our culture today. To capture a sense of Paul's gratitude and joy. For his fellow believers. Ours is a world that is today. Not filled with the attitudes that we would say are joyful and gracious or thankful. Instead, that there's much fear, there's much suspicion, there's a lot of criticism and condemnation towards one another, even in the church. And what is often so saddening and disruptive to our testimony is that we do this to those who we share in Christ together with. And as we share Christ together, so too do we share in his commission to proclaim the gospel. Paul's example is that this reality alone should fuel gratitude and joy towards one another, regardless of our current circumstances. For Paul, a gospel worker who had found himself held in chains in a prison cell, the circumstances couldn't be hardly any more concerning. Yet Paul's example to us is to remain thankful and joyful in the in the face of discomforting circumstances that we may find ourselves in. Rather than mope, rather than complain about a situation, it's in Paul's prison letters where we find him most exuberant about the work of God and the people of God. And it's from his cell that he's writing to these congregations that the Holy Spirit was forming through the proclamation of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And when Paul thinks of the people who are being changed and transformed by the gospel, he's remembering them with joy and gratitude because he knows that they are in it together. Friends, we are in this together. This is the reality of the world that God has planted us in. When we come to saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ, he doesn't call us to go at this world by ourselves and alone. Rather, he calls us into community with one another, a community through which he is working and involved in. And we should be joyful and we should be thankful for the presence of other believers going into our world, sharing the gospel together as a community. Paul remarks in verse 5 that he is always thankful and prays with joy because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so friends, here's our example. Church, just look around where you're seated. Look at the people on your left. Look at the people on your right, the people in front of you. The people behind you. These are the people who we are partnered together in the ministry of the gospel with. Some of them are not even here physically present right now. Some of them are serving in other parts of the world. Some of them are with us online. It's very interesting that while we're not always physically together with one another, for many different reasons and circumstances, we can still very well be thankful for the partnership that we have in Christ and the gospel. Neither our circumstances nor our separation change the reality of our partnership. Anna, what would you say, five years it's been since you've been here? And we're still partnered together with you. And we don't get to see you face to face too often. But that doesn't change the nature of uh, of our partnership, that separation, God is not bound by that. And that's a beautiful thing. Paul's model was to find a way, even when separated, even when imprisoned, even when shipwrecked or ill for Paul, participation never demanded physical presence. I find that to be very interesting. Paul's ministry was effective among people even when he wasn't able to be physically present with them. And I was caught this week, even struck, to imagine how effective would Paul have been able to be today, giving the tools that we have at our disposal. I mean, Paul used letters. I tried to write five handwritten letters this week in my office. Five. Each of the handwritten letters were a Paragraph. I got to the fifth letter, five paragraphs and my left hand, I'm left handed. It started to cramp. <laughs> and I realized how reliant we are today on keyboards and typing. I, I haven't written five paragraphs probably since I was in high school written. It's amazing. And, and I think about what Paul could have done with email. Look how effective he was with just the tool of letter writing. What could he have done with screens and emails and Zoom and all of the online opportunities we have to be present with one another, though we are physically separated? Oftentimes, friends, it's our own lack of imagination that keeps us from meaningful partnership when we are away from one another. We fail to understand or to remember the power of a word, of a letter, of a phone call, of an email, or even an online interaction. We sometimes, in our behaviors, act as if we believe that God needs us to physically be with one another in order for him to effectively work through and use our communities. When perhaps the reality is this, if we are truly living... As agents deployed for the sake of the gospel and for the cause of Christ. We might imagine that there would be seasons where for many different reasons, we might often be apart from one another. Partnership and participation do not require proximity. However, God uses proximity to deepen and sharpen our partnership and participation in Jesus and the gospel. Think of our global workers. Think of Emily. Think of Jenna. They're not here physically present with us today. In fact, there'll be a a, a good season of time here when they're not physically present with us. However, we're still praying. We're still supporting We're still partnered together in the work of the gospel. When we hold this posture and this attitude, it should cause us to be aware and reminded that the work of the gospel is not dependent on any one individual. Rather, it is wholly dependent on the power of God at work in and through his people. Paul's ministry participation and his partnership with the Philippians, it didn't begin and end with his physical presence among the people. And their ministry effectiveness didn't require the presence of Paul for them to continue. Now, we don't want to take it too far. This doesn't mean that we forsake Christian community and gathering, because that was not Paul's example. Rather, Paul embraced it. Even as he's demonstrating here in his ministry of letter writing to the churches, he couldn't physically be present with them. So he found in his time and his culture and his space, the next best way that he could be present. Friends, we are an imperfect people who God has called into community with one another. Because quite honestly, we need one another. We need one another. The Bible says it over and over again. One of the primary ministries of the church is to encourage, support, and build one another up in the faith. Not only are we a community who together desperately need Jesus, but we're also a community that Jesus has formed who needs one another. And through joy and gratitude, and though joy and gratitude should characterize our partnership, it's also important that we remember that we participate in the ministry of the gospel as imperfect and incomplete people. In verses 6 to 8, Paul is going to use three different statements that begin with the word for. The first is in verse 6. Take a look. He says this. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul knows, and we should know too, church, that we come together as unfinished products. Jesus is still working on all of us, and we should be thankful that he is. And, and I've said this before from the pulpit, but I think it's important to keep out in front of us today in, in a day and age where information is so available and the temptation to be experts is always before us. We feel like we can go online and read an article and be an expert in something. Friends, our posture should be to endeavor to be lifelong learners, lifelong learners, lifelong learners. With ears tuned towards humility, towards listening, and growing in our knowledge and understanding of God through His Word. It's an interesting phenomenon of the modern church that somewhere along the way, we decided that from a very young age, people needed to have everything together. Everything As it relates to theology, the things of God from a young age, we expect we have to have it all figured out or at least give the appearance that we do. And I see this and we've seen this, especially in colleges and seminaries who are training ministry leaders. These folks often graduating in their early to mid 20s and there's this sort of social or even cultural pressure that as they graduate and go into the world that they're supposed to have everything already figured out how to be a parent figured out how to be a husband or wife got to have that figured out theology completely pinned down complete and full understanding a to Z of the scriptures. An entire philosophy of ministry completed and finely tuned in our minds. And many do this they're not married or they're newly married. They haven't ever parented a child. They've never spent one day in vocational ministry or have been in any substantial leadership role. And then when these leaders get into churches and ministries and they stumble and they fall and they fail, we excoriate them. Because this is the way that we believe people should be. Living as if we already have everything figured out. As if there is nothing left for us to learn. Perhaps, friends, we would be far better off if we recognized, invited, welcomed, and demonstrated patience and understanding towards one another with this verse in mind. We are never... As long as we are on this earth, we are never finished products. We are not complete. till Christ is done. Not one of us. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I'm perfect, that's for sure. And if I ever do, kick me out, quick. Jesus demonstrated that he can use incomplete and imperfect people, did he not? Isn't that the beautiful testimony of his disciples? How many of Jesus' disciples were perfect and had it all together? None. Not one. Even Paul would tell you. He did not. Look at his second statement in verse 7. Paul's not put off. He's not ashamed of their imperfection or his incompleteness. It didn't turn him away from the people. He recognized it as something that held him in solidarity together with them. It is right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. Partners in the gospel, partners in partakers of the grace of God. It's okay for us to think of one another as imperfect and incomplete, because just like we all share as participants in the gospel, we also share in the distinctions of being imperfect and incomplete. As Paul identifies with the Philippian people, they have continued to identify together with him. He's in prison now and they are unashamed because they know him. Because they're in partnership with him for the gospel and the sake of the gospel. Now, a lot of times, someone being in prison might cause a group of people to be a bit ashamed. And would affect and limit the partnership, but not in Paul's case. Together, whether free or in the cell of a prison, they are recipients and partners of God's grace. And and sharing in these powerful distinctions creates a common bond and unity. As we do this, we should begin to grow in our love and affection towards one another. Paul even describes it in verse 8 as a longing. Look at the word he uses. For God is my witness that I long. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus when's the last time you've longed for someone perhaps that's something that many of us don't experience but perhaps there's many in our community who have many who have sent a child overseas for ministry or otherwise many who have lost a child many who have lost a loved one our widows our widowers you know what it means to long this kind of affection that Paul is talking about here. That some of us, we haven't experienced that feeling for so long, it may be hard for us to recognize the depth of emotion that Paul is feeling as he writes this letter, the depth of love that he feels for his people. I haven't had this feeling too often in my life from time to time. Occasionally traveling, things like that, being away, it doesn't come often. And through this longing and affection for one another, as love is abounding within the Christian community, God begins to produce something within the community that is wonderful and that is hopeful. Now, Paul's initiated this portion of his letter, this opening, by reminding the believers gathered in Philippi that he was praying joyfully for them. And what he's going to do in verses 9 through 11 is describe the contents of his prayers for the people. Paul goes before God with three primary petitions for the people. They fit neatly together. One in verse 9, one in verse 10, one in verse 11. There's three petitions. Let's look at it again. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul's first petition is that a growing love would result in a greater knowledge and discernment in the community. Not the kind of knowledge and discernment that puffs up or sets a person or a community on a pedestal over and above others. This was not the kind of knowledge and discernment that Jesus demonstrated or encouraged But rather a knowledge and a discernment that is active and working together with the people. One further described in Paul's petition of verse 10. A knowledge and a discernment that is working leads to a community being able to approve of what is excellent. And again, excellence not defined by the world's standards. We're so often drawn in to define excellence as the world does. But our example... For excellence is given in verse 21 of chapter 1. It is our memory verse for this month. Who is our example for excellence? For me to live is who? Christ. When Paul speaks about excellence, he's speaking about the example of Christ, which we're soon going to see very clearly in chapter 2. Jesus is our model for the approval of the excellent. This is the linchpin to Paul's entire letter to the Christians gathered in Philippi. It is Jesus's example, Jesus's lifestyle, his attitudes, his habits and the ways that he lived that should inform, guide and direct the lives of the people whom he has called. What is excellent is not wrapped up in social Or political movements as our culture understands, defends, or participates in them. Instead, the excellent is always firmly rooted and established in the person and life of Christ. That is the standard. He is the standard. Amen? Jesus is the standard of excellence. Amen? Amen. Amen. We got to be on that one, church. We got to be on that one. When Jesus is our standard of excellence, we can live, as Paul says in verse 10, pure and blameless because he is the standard of purity and blamelessness. This word purity that Paul uses in verse 10, it points towards the inner workings of the Christian community. Or if we're reading this uh, devotionally and independent of our connection to the broader Christian community, it points to the inner workings of our own hearts. What is moving us? What is motivating us as individuals and as Christian communities? Who or what is claiming our allegiance, our dedication, our utmost loyalty? Why are we sometimes quick to respond with negativity, judgment, criticism, or anger? What is the source of our own fear and our own insecurity? This idea of purity connects us back to the standard of excellence in Christ. It should be Christ inwardly compelling us and fueling us to live in this world as he has called us to be salt and light. It should be Jesus and his kingdom who have claimed our first and ultimate allegiance, our dedication, and our utmost loyalty. And the attitudes and the habits and the postures and the mind of Christ should inform our responses to others while we live in this world he has planted us in. And friends, it is scary sometimes. I talk about this. It can be uncomfortable, unsettling, disruptive. And when it is, we should turn to Jesus. He is our source of perfect love, whose excellent love is able to cast out all fear. Christ, the standard of excellence, the standard of purity in the world, but also the standard of blamelessness. When Paul speaks of blameless behavior, he is aiming at the outward testimony of the Christian community. Often in his letters, you will find in the New Testament, Paul is very concerned about the testimony of the Christian church and its effectiveness where it's been planted. Are the behaviors of the Christian community, by and large, allowing us to shine as light and affect our communities as salt. Allowing our church to be seen as a beacon of light, a place of hope by those who have been called, that we have been called to serve and reach with the gospel. If our purity and our blamelessness are rightly paired with the fruits that Paul is talking about, the fruits of righteousness, which we can equate with the fruits of the Spirit, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, then perhaps in the course of our lives and ministries we will find many more attracted to the ways of Christ instead of repelled by them. Now it is interesting. Jesus' life is an interesting one to study. Jesus lived in perfect purity and blamelessness, yet many were attracted to to him. Many repelled him as well. Many turned against him, ultimately even having him crucified. But what's interesting in the life of Christ is to those who were attracted and transformed by him, there was life and there is still abundant life available today. The question for us, church, might be, what is the testimony of our Christian community communicating to our surrounding neighborhoods about the person and hope of Jesus that we have and should hold to. Paul's final petition in his prayer for the people draws us towards a harvest produced by God when the Christian community is functioning and abounding with love. In these Christian communities, there is a fruit of righteousness that comes not through our own strength and efforts, but rather, supernaturally through Jesus Christ, by the power and the work of his spirit alive and at work in our communities. Functioning as salt and light in the world that we inhabit might look a lot like what Paul has prayed for the people in verses 9 through 11 in the opening of his letter. Paul is imprisoned, but he's not alone. He is grateful and he is joyful as he reminds himself and reminds the Christian communities that he has planted throughout the world that we are not created to do this by ourselves. Instead, we have the spirit of the Lord and the encouragement and the enrichment that should come from the Christian community. As partners together in the work of the gospel, we should demonstrate these same attitudes towards one another. Gratitude, joy, abounding love. Friends, these things go a long way in keeping us vibrant and effective as gospel workers today. Find me a community that's joyless, thankless, and filled with hate. And I'll find you a hopeless community without the life and love of Jesus working through it. But find me a community in this world. Show me a community standing today in this world as salt and light with joy, with abounding love, and with great thankfulness. And I believe that we can point to a place where Jesus is at work and the Holy Spirit is having effect and producing fruit in the community. Biblical scholar Warren Wearsby says this regarding Paul's vision for vibrant and effective Christian community. He said, quote, Paul uses three thoughts in Philippians 1, 1 through 11 that describe true Christian fellowship. I have you in mind, Philippians 1, 3 to 6. I have you in my heart, Philippians 1, 7 to 8. And I have you in my prayers, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. End quote. Church, what an example for us. What a model for us today. And as our team comes, to lead us in our final song. Perhaps the example for us would be to keep one another in our minds and our thoughts, to hold one another in our hearts, to long for one another, to have one another in our prayers. Let's bow our heads together for a benediction. Lord, might you grow us in our love as you cultivate knowledge and discernment within our community, keeping us pure and blameless. Lord, we pray that you would bring the harvest of fruit, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus as we live for him to glorify you in our worlds today. And we thank you for how your work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful day in Jesus. We'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.